Today, we are welcoming Melissa Mose. Melissa has been a therapist in private practice for 30 years and has specialized in working with OCD for roughly half that time. She's currently the president of OCD Southern California, an affiliate of the International OCD Foundation, and she's an international speaker and educator on obsessive compulsive disorder. As a level three trained and certified internal family systems therapist, and an IFSI-improved professional consultant, Melissa is committed to developing a more compassionate, IFS-informed approach to evidence-based treatment for OCD. She's currently working on several projects designed to raise awareness, improve early identification, and provide a wider range of treatment options for individuals with OCD. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Welcome, Melissa, and thanks for sitting with us to discuss such a difficult topic. Melissa, you have had a very interesting professional journey. You were originally trained in Jungian depth psychology and family therapy, modalities with common ground with IFS. But your interest in OCD then led you to study evidence-based treatment for OCD through cognitive behavioral therapy and then you received IFS training and certification. Can you share more with us about this shift from treating OCD with CBT to using IFS? What do you believe IFS offers that can be especially useful for OCD treatment that clients do not receive with CBT? Oh, wow. Um, a lot. <laughs> I think there's a lot that IFS can offer. And I think... Um, we're at a time that's really exciting right now in uh, the the treatment of OCD field because I think there there are people who are really opening uh, their minds to new options. So, you know, I'm really grounded in um, attachment and um, you know areas that are are very common with IFS, as you mentioned. That that's really where I come from, and the first. Part of my career was working with adolescents and families, so a lot of family systems work. Um, and then through personal experience with my daughter's OCD and her um, her exposure and response prevention treatment, I watched her get better. But I also saw some of the drawbacks. So um, initially, my thought was, I want to learn how to do that because exposure, and I'll just. I'll differentiate that from ERP in a minute, but exposure is very powerful. And a lot of what we do in IFS is exposure um, in the broad sense of the term. And so I think when we open to that, what IFS brings to ERP and exposure treatment is a lot more nuance and the ability to stay very experienced near with our clients and their particular parts rather than a more top-down um, procedural kind of an approach. And so whereas I, I think it's important to note that even 40 years ago, really, we didn't have any good treatments for OCD. Um, it was kind of assumed that OCD was untreatable. And so it's important that there were very few things that worked until people discovered ERP and 
so for me, my curiosity led me to, um, why is that? You know, like what's going on there? And then my grounding in what I do with, with, um, attachment and IFS and, and how I discovered that, uh, I just felt like I was doing very much the same things, whether I was doing an IFS session or an ERP session. And partly I think it's because of my training in meditation um, and the Eastern religions that I discovered in college and learning to just open to whatever arises. So from that perspective, whether I'm doing a more exposure-based behavioral um, and I can't do it without having an IFS lens anymore, but whether I'm doing that kind of work, we're like turning towards an experience with openness and curiosity and having a new experience there, right? So that's opening to whatever arises. That's exactly what we do in IFS. So for me, I just saw this very natural connection between the two that underneath it all, we may use different language. We may have different belief systems about what helps people. But underneath it all, we're doing the same thing. So that that's the bridge. OCD is generally considered a neuropsychiatric disorder because there are genetic and neurological mechanisms that might be involved in its development and in its maintenance. So we understand there's no single cause for OCD, but we were just curious if you could help us understand maybe some of the factors that might contribute to the development of OCD in someone's system. Right. So there, you know, without going into a bunch of technical brain stuff, right? There's a brain glitch. It's like a hiccup in the brain. Um, somebody described it to me once as Parkinson's of the brain, right? There's an uh-oh that happens. And that that what if or uh-oh or might this be the case moment just happens. And there's a very low threshold in people for who have OCD for that to be triggered. Um, so we all have scanners, you know, we have parts that scan, um, someone with OCD, those, those scanning parts kind of get alerted much more easily and much more, um, repetitively. And because when there's this, it's, it's really a negative feedback loop, other parts jump in and, and fix the problem out there in the world. And it's really, really effective. And so it's this reinforcement that happens that the more it works, of course, the more our system says, oh, yeah, do that again. That relieves our arousal, our, you know, our, our concerns, our fears, our whatever it happens to be, discomfort, disgust. It's not all, it's not all anxiety. That's another important piece of it. Um, so what causes the development of that to to continue is this is the fact that compulsions work <laughs> and the more you do compulsions the more the obsessions crop up and and seek relief that way so and that's an important thing to know if you're working with OCD is that you know a lot of times compulsions seem really reasonable like people wash their hands or ask for you know more clarity on that or reassurance or go check things to make sure that these aren't really, you know, they don't, they aren't standout firefighter behaviors. Right. 
So we engage in them. And if it's a normal system like yours or mine, that's okay. When it's somebody who has OCD and that loop is, is extremely sensitive to be being reinforced every time we go along with the, you know, that compulsive loop we're we're getting that marble deeper in the groove. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And um, so you've said that OCD can be conceptualized a bit differently from maybe addictive systems, from trauma, from eating disorders, and from other issues that IFS is typically really effective with treating. Because in OCD, similar to maybe ADHD or autism, it's important to recognize that the symptoms are not just reflecting the activity of parts, but that the parts may also be reacting to neurology or to what you're calling this brain glitch. So you're starting to help us understand that. I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to say about the fact that there are parts in the system that are reacting to the neurology. Right. I I have a lot of really wonderful clinicians come to me for consultation. And, you know, I thought for a while, maybe it was just me, but (laughs) we can do a wonderful, deep, bit of work with somebody and unburdened exiles. And, you know, typically then those protectors relax, right? And, um, and you know, truly they do over the long haul. I mean, this IFS works in that way. But what people find and what I have found is that in OCD, those protective parts don't, don't just give up that easily. Um, and, you know, I know we... It, it's not so much a habit that they do it. You know, originally I thought, well, maybe it's a habit and having conversations with people like, like Martha Sweezy, who, you know, she said, I don't buy it. I don't, it's not a habit. That's not how these parts work. Right. And so I really questioned and over the years and, you know, hundreds of, of clients with OCD, um, what I've discovered is it, I, it's true. These parts are reacting to something neurological. Um, and, you know, our parts do react to our biology. They, um, and so we can have a lot more self-energy and a lot more peace in the system and a lot more flexibility. But I think somebody with OCD may always have a little bit of that, uh-oh, at a lower rate than somebody else. And it's just important to acknowledge. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong. That's just how their brain works. Yes, it's such an important piece in helping the the client and the various parts of the client adjust to the way that they are wired, you know, because otherwise the parts themselves can have reactions. And then critical parts jump in. And I mean, that's the heartbreaking piece is that so many people come to therapy, not even realizing it's OCD sometimes thinking what's wrong with me. I'm a monster. I have these horrible thoughts. I mean, even little kids. Um, and just on the on the on the topic of this of this neurobiological piece, one of the things that's so compelling in terms of really helping me clarify my thinking on this is when you work with an eight-year-old or you know, a little one who has pans or pandas, um, the pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep was how we just pandas is how we discovered this, right? So there's this autoimmune type reaction 
where antibodies attack the brain and you have OCD, right? So there is a biological piece to this and it creates these thoughts, these horrible thoughts in these little people who have no trauma, really, other than the traumatic experiences of being human. And, um, you know, they have thoughts of, of wanting to hurt people and they, they think there's something really wrong with them. Yeah, so educating on that, I think, is really helpful. Melissa, we would love to hear more about how you understand the structure of the obsessive-compulsive system through an IFS lens. Can you describe what we see in the protective system of someone with OCD, including some of the common types of managers and firefighters and what kind of fears and strategies they have? Yeah, great. I, I think it's it's um, this topic that has been evolving in my thinking, right? I hear about, um, well, let me, let me just sort of back up for a second. Obsessions by definition stir up anxiety and compulsions leave it. I mean, that's just the really sort of crude way of, of thinking about it. So originally what I started seeing was managers, much like critics, uh, inadvertently stir up thoughts about the bad things they're trying to prevent, right? So um, I hear a lot about hypervigilant parts, um, scanning parts, right? And, and scanning parts that are really scanning and tracking. How close did this get to that? It was near, was it near enough? Um, hypervigilant parts that are monitoring language or thoughts. Um, so these, these managerial parts kind of do the storytelling process with whatever that uh-oh throws up, right? So it's like this glitch tees up a ball and the managers like hit it out of the park and, and kind of almost intentionally stir up, um, other states of, you know, angst and exiles and, and dysregulation. So um, scanners, hypervigilant hyper parts, um, worriers, critics, parts that, that say, well, what kind of person wouldn't check? Um, and so, you know, it, it's often a team on the obsessional side of things of, parts that we all have, and then parts that get really much more specific in the OCD world, trying to make these, um, people talk a lot about inferential confusion, right? It's going to take, we're going to, we're going to make this conclusion out of all of these irrelevant associations. It's not really based in reality, but could be true. So um, is it possible kinds of parts? So that's on the manager end. Um, and then sort of like a, um, I'm often talking about, it's like an overly sensitive car alarm that gets set off. And so it's set, setting up the alarm so that nothing bad actually happens. And I, when I talk about what are you afraid would happen if you didn't do your job, you know, when I get to that question, a lot of times people will say, well, that she wouldn't be careful enough right? That something bad would actually happen. And so, and then on the firefighter end, we have mostly compulsions in terms of I'll handle that. Um, we've got fixers, we've got rule followers. A lot of times 
the prevention piece are, are rule makers, protocol setters, <laughs> those types of parts. And the firefighters fall into decontaminating, mentally reviewing, so mental rituals, um, a lot of reassurance seeking parts, um, parts that um, just seek all kinds of safety or diminishing of anxiety once it's stirred up. Melissa, you also say, in our view, protective parts make a cognitive mistake. They do not understand that faulty hardwiring in the brain is generating a false alarm. They do not understand that the vulnerable parts who get scared and feel I'm not okay when that alarm system goes off are reacting to a problem which is completely beyond their control, rather than generating and ultimately being the problem. So please tell us more about this cognitive mistake. When that horrible thought pops into a person's head, and it's, it's an intrusion, right? It's involuntary. Parts are horrified by that, right? Like, why would you think that is kind of what I hear a lot. And so then there's kind of, there's, a, there's another part that gets blamed for that. Well, you must be bad, right? You, um, people will think, yeah, I'm a monster. Or, you know, what if I'm, what if I'm creepy for having those, those, you know, because the taboo thoughts are, are all the things that, that are going to horrify you. The, the thoughts that people have with OCD are the ones that they most would not want to have. They attack areas that are very important, right? So it's a lot of harm and violence or sexual thoughts that are not where a person would want to go. Um, harm to loved ones and, and self. And so um, the cognitive mistake is not, is that there's no way these parts of us, they don't recognize what OCD is. They don't recognize the neurological glitch. They blame a part, they blame and exile it. And that reinforces everything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the psychoeducation can really bring relief to the system and a shift yeah. can help. Yeah. So, yeah. so exiles and their burdens might be a little bit different in systems with OCD, maybe than in other systems. So in OCD, psychosocial trauma might not necessarily be at the root of the exile's wounding. So could you share your thoughts on the types of burdens that you've seen exiles commonly carrying in a system with OCD and how the burdens impact the obsessive compulsive cycles it happens on a few levels and it's different over time is what i'm discovering uh initially i mean in, in a very simple level ocd is all about fear of being a bad person right much of it is a bad person a dirty person a careless person there's this um actually inference-based cbt is is another great up and coming model in the field and they talk about the feared possible self or a vulnerable self theme. And a lot of that is about being careless or, or bad. So on one level, and again, it's different with every person. This, you know, I'm talking in generalities, but um, some people really do have exiles who carry more commonly understood burdens, like, you know, feeling shame and guilt. Um, if, some, if I don't knock on wood three times, 
and something bad happens, then I'm responsible. It'll be my fault. So there's this attribution of, of guilt to that part. Um, other times it's not, it's not like that, right? Other times it's, it is more like we were saying earlier, it was, it's more uh, a neurological piece. Um, but then what happens over time? Well, it, well, let me finish that thought that when it, when it isn't a traditional burden, a lot of times in exile, I think is confused about why they're being blamed for this. Right. And so exiles carry this uncertainty as a burden. And one of the, the hypotheses that I had early on is that maybe exiles, instead of thinking I am bad, like many do, it's what if I'm bad, right? Might I, like this uncertainty about what is happening in the system, because it's it's neurological. It, it, it wasn't based in personal experience. It's not a personal experience experience burden or it may be there may be legacies there as well because of course it's highly genetic and you know people are often living with other systems who are doing OCD in their world um and then the third piece of this is that over time um what I've seen is especially in very extreme systems the protectors become so dominant and so harsh and they work so hard and they push a person so far beyond what they feel capable of doing, you know, getting up for the 20th time in the middle of the night to wash their bleeding hands. And it's, it's torture that protectors are actually traumatizing exiles and creating burdens in the present. And um, so that adds to the complication. Yeah. Lisa, you say that your approach to working with OCD is something you call, or you could call, IFS informed exposure therapy, where you define exposure as turning towards something that was previously avoided with openness. You suggest redefining the classic technique ERP, exposure and response prevention, into this interesting and different ERP encounter and relate to parts. Can you say more about this idea? Yeah, I, I, I really do feel like what we're doing, even when we're doing pure IFS, is where we're doing something kind of like response prevention when we're asking protectors to give permission, right? And we're, so we're relating to these protectors. And, you know, I, I've ultimately come around to that what we're doing is not just ERP, but it's RPERP. -E <laughs> We're relating to our protectors, right? We're allowing them to begin to trust enough to give space to encounter an exile, right? And that experience that we're exiling, that whatever is being carried there that we don't want to have is the encounter that's healing, right? And we know that, that's what we do. So that's the exposure essentially in in my method it's encountering an exile with protectors watching in a sense the protectors are doing the exposure <laughs> um they're watching self be present with this other part and it's that's the healing right there it's witnessing so exposure is essentially witnessing and then of course there's this final rp which is 
going back to those protectors who may not be ready to let go of what they've been doing and helping to build that self-depart trusting relationship that when they want to jump in and and do their thing, uh, scan or fix, um, that self is present now. And so um, that's the that's sort of that third phase of, of the work where we do the, the response prevention. And then, Melissa, you name these maybe new concept of self-led ERP. Can you say more on what exactly is or would be self-led ERP? Yeah, self-led ERP is really, it, it, it was my original term for what I just described, kind of, it's, you know, that, that once we have enough self-present and enough access to that self-energy, um, that's when we're doing these exposures and not and not before. It's a challenging process to get there. Um, but it's uh, because protectors oftentimes have really taken over and and they think they are self. Um, so that so a lot of the work with OCD is going to be in that becoming self-led phase of the work, becoming um, getting the protectors to trust self enough. And so the self-led ERP, was, you know, self-led encounter and relate to parts. It was kind of whimsical at first so that IFS therapists could go ahead and say they do ERP, but of course we can't do that. <laughs> um, but it is, it, it's essentially a different language for doing something similar in a much more conscious, present, soft, and compassionate way. And the, the curiosity of it all is the key. Something that, you know, hearing you talk is, making me think about is the fact that what we often see in symptoms that are impacted by OCD is how difficult it can be for clients to access self, for protectors to trust the self to lead. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on why that might be true in these systems. Yeah, before I, well, along alongside that, um, Exposure, the exposure piece, just to sort of tag on to the last question, part of the exposure aspect of this process is, is to develop that trust because um, protectors are really used to running the show. They're very, um, because of this negative reinforcement loop, because um it's also, it's not a war. It's not a, it's not as much a polarization as an alliance between managers and firefighters, right? Managers recruit these firefighters, they team up together. So they form this really um, strong bond that makes it really hard. They're very self-like. And so the unity between those, like I'll stir up the, ang the anguish, the despair, and you fix it. That way the person stays safe. That's why, that way nothing bad happens. Um, it, it's really effective. So that, that's partly why. So in other words, because the relief that the firefighters provide works so well, it almost, the managers then purposely stir it up so that they could get that wonderful relief. Exactly. Thank you for clarifying that. So the managers stir it up, firefighters fix it. And so managers realize that, and then they recruit them more frequently. And um so it gets to be a very strong alliance. And then 
that the how the reason to do actual experiential experiments is to try it you know it's like what if we try and it's, it reminds me a little about um of the the it's the vagal break that you talk about right so so really learning to to develop that tone slowly is like well let's try something that's really a little bit challenging as an exposure or an experiment and be relating with our parts the whole time right so what's that like for this part what's that like for that part can we can we unblend right that's actually part of the of the um, really effective way that I've been blending the two approaches. So this is what you were talking about in the beginning, where it takes traditional approaches but keeps it much more nuanced and experienced near. Exactly. For the oh, okay, oh, oh, how wonderful. I mean, I think I think the actual taking it out into the world part is really important for OCD. We do internal work. We do imaginal exposures essentially all the time you know, OCD happens in the world. And so a lot, so it's both at the beginning and it, and towards the end to, to sort of practice after more of the work's been done, but, but let's try it is a way to get the, get the parts kind of up and activated enough to work with. And then we really get to map them. We really get to know them. What, where, where is that in your body and how is it, how is it inhabiting you right now? And what do you want to say? And, you know, Really, that befriending of the protective system happens in that more traditional ERP work when I'm pairing the two. I don't always pair the two, but when I do, that's how it works. We know that traditional talk therapies for OCD don't tend to be very effective, where people are just talking about their symptoms, talking about their distress, talking with their therapist. But what you're talking about with this experiential therapy that IFS is, is that we are actually activating the distress, the worries to some degree, the uncertainties that discuss all of the things that are so difficult to tolerate, and that the managers are always recruiting the firefighters to help calm all that. But we're actually having that active. And then in this way, we're facilitating the client accessing self and being with these experiences, which really shows the protectors, it's okay, we can be with us, you know? And so it's really experiential work, the imaginal exposure that you're talking about. I see yeah, why it's... No, that is exactly why IFS is so helpful for uh, working with OCD. And it actually is a method that works because it's, it is experiential. It's not talk therapy. We're not talking about our parts. Uh, we're not talking to clients about their parts. We're engaging the parts. We're relating to the parts. So it's relational. It's experiential. And people who have OCD very naturally talk about their parts. They come in and they say, well, my brain tells me I have to do this, but I know that I don't. Um, but I can't resist it. So they're already just offering up the parts language. And so it's, it's a natural segue. And, and the shift is, in, you know, in traditional uh, treatment, people are fighting OCD. So there's all these books, talk back to OCD and, you know, tame your OCD monster. And it's so much more powerful when people can say, you know, that part has a point, right? 
like, let's look at the logic that that part's using and the reasoning that part's using and understand, oh, that actually makes a certain kind of sense. And I, and I'm here too. Right. So for people to do that kind of work um, with parts is also an, another way that IFS naturally works well um, is that when we befriend these protectors, they relax a whole lot more of easily. Course. I always say that regardless of how people understand parts, whatever they think parts are, regardless of that, they do act exactly as people do. So when we, instead of fighting them, when we're curious, when we're respectful, when they, we assume that they have a reason for doing what they're doing and we interact with them in this compassionate, respectful way, they do relax, which increases safety in the system, which makes it more possible to access self. And then we get all this relational healing inside. So it's so exciting. So, so you've proposed um, three phases of IFS treatment for OCD. So we're wondering if you could talk a bit about these phases for us? Sure. Um, yeah, the, the beginning part of it is the work with the protectors. Um, it's really helping people do this befriending process and really work with unblending. Um, and, you know, being able to identify how my hypervigilant part sounds in my head versus what I sound like when I might be being careful, right? Um, so really helping people learn to unblend. So it's becoming more self-led and, you know, this isn't any different than we would do in traditional IFS work, you know, anyway. So it's, um, understanding a lot of the, how, how these storytelling parts create this bubble of confusion that, you know, other parts buy into. And, um, so it's befriending and unblending. Um, and then we move into the healing steps just as we would normally do that. Um, and as I've said already, we, we sort of encounter these parts that have these challenging feelings and these beliefs about the self or stuck feelings. You feel, you find a lot of people with, um, sensory dysregulation too with OCD. Um, and they'll have these really uncomfortable physical experiences that they know a compulsion will fix, right? So we do a lot of then the, the healing of the exile, the witnessing, unburdening with those, those beliefs. And then the third phase, as I already alluded to, is returning to the protectors, checking to see what they saw, updating the protectors lots of updating, right? So if protectors recognize self can actually be with that part, um, then again, they sort of downregulate themselves a little bit. They may still jump up, but they don't take over. They don't blend. So, and, and that practicing and taking it out into the world, um, again, with that really nuanced experience near awareness of their own personal individual parts um, makes it so much deeper. I've heard clients again and again say, I've done traditional ERP, but I've never done exposures that felt this deep. <laughs> and, and so I really do feel like when you're healing those parts, uh, it does help, <laughs> obviously, right? It does help protectors, even if you still have a glitch. 
Melissa, you say that in phase three, we help the client relate differently to their protectors. You say with exiles safely retrieved and unburdened, the third phase is where the unburdening of protectors begins. Can you say more? Do OCD protectors need special attention to enable unburdening? Thank you for asking that because I neglected to say that part. I absolutely feel they need special attention. I, a lot of protectors have burdens too. Um, in OCD, I find they feel so responsible for protecting the person, their person, right? They feel like they are, it's their job. They're very much parentified children. Um, and so uh, they carry a lot. Like I've, I, worked with a lot of like protectors who carry guilt and responsibility as well as burdens. So if I don't do this and something happens, um, you know, this horrible, um, heavy burden of shame and guilt. So, and they've, they've also, they also feel very overworked. They feel very underappreciated. <laughs> um, and they've had bad experiences too, that they want witnessed. And, the, the relationship with protectors, and I talk a lot about managers, and I've realized lately I've, I've neglected these firefighters as more like following the, the managers. But I realize, you know, the, the firefighter parts are, are whole parts too, right? They, they have their whole agenda for why their particular method is going to work and what happens if they don't and what will they do instead. Um, so to ask a part not to jump in and fix anguish, um, that part needs to really trust self. And, and so, yeah, I do find that I do a lot of unburdenings with protectors and that, 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 that can provide a lot of relief. We started touching on this earlier, but I was curious if you might have more to add on this topic, which is that in contrast to other situations that we see in IFS treatment with OCD, unburdening the exiles might not be enough to help the protectors feel, okay, it's safe for me to step down from my role. So in your third phase of treatment, you're mentioning not just the unburdening of the protectors that we were just talking about, which is so important, but also incorporating the behavioral technique of trying something new in the outside world, not just the internal exposures. Um, so if you could say more about this process of incorporating the external environment and how the IFS therapist might facilitate that phase. Right. Yeah. That that's an, that's important. Um, I've, you know, that's, that's really practical and it really is bringing it out into the world sometimes. Right. So, Okay, we've we've got this, um, and I I don't want to neglect to say that sometimes OCD is organized around trauma, right? Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it is, and sometimes the OCD itself is traumatic, creates trauma. You know, people end up living out of their cars because they can't walk through the house, and um, so let's say we have an exile um, who is very wounded. Or who carries wounding and, and we heal, we heal that part, right? And we have that part is now somewhere safe. And um, that work has been done and everything in the system is a lot more calm. 
then a person um, realizes an event is coming up that's traditionally really triggering. Okay, so what we will do is we can do a lot of uh, preparing the protective parts for that, a lot of relationship building and, and, and talking about imagining, okay, what's going to come up in that situation? Um, and it might be, well, you know, and these protectors will get really loud. Uh, watch out for this. Don't let that happen. If this happens, then we need to do that. And this has to come before. So they start, they start orchestrating, right? Again, like, well, we can, we'll go, let's say it's lunch with somebody and whatever. Uh, we'll go, but we have to do it this way and we have to. And so it's those kinds of actual real life situations that just provide us with opportunities for integrating what we've been doing and, re and reminding the parts that they don't have to go, right? Some parts like that part can go be somewhere else and let you handle this person at lunch or, um, or sometimes we actually do, let's, let's practice it on a smaller level um, and do bit by bit, like, it's going to be hard to go get in the car after such and so somebody has used it. Right. So we get closer and closer to the car and then we talk to parts, you know, and um, really help those parts trust that self is not going to throw them into a dangerous situation. Self is not going to just blow past the protectors. The person is not going to, you know, do something that the parts are not ready to do. So, it is a delicate dance in that we know we can't just let, we can't just sort of let the system do what it would ordinarily want to do, right? We have to show these parts that, you know, there's a leader here and self can handle life. And so we do that incrementally. And um, so that, so that third phase is a lot about, um, about, updating, showing protectors and doing things practically in the world um, while continuing to reinforce those relationships. It's a relation, relationship building phase is, is really how I originally conceptualized that. Yeah. I love this with the, the IFS based relational approach, because I'm thinking of things that I was advised to do, you know, 20 years ago, with clients when they were facing situations which would kind of kick up the obsessive compulsive processes. And they would be asked to go into these situations and maybe the most they'd be asked to do is just as they approach, let's say they're approaching the car to get in it after someone else has been in it to try to just relax and bring calm to the system. But in the way they were doing it, yes, they might be able to achieve more of a state of you know, biological regulation, but it's essentially exiling all the parts that have all the fears and all the concerns and the what if this and that. So maybe they'll be lulled a little bit and then you get in the car, they still have all the reasons for being upset that they had before, all the fears and concerns. There's not a reinforcement of self as the leader of the system. So with what you're proposing, it's staying in connection with the parts the whole time. Every step of the way, we get a little closer to the car and we check in with the parts. How's everyone doing? Anyone want to share anything? And so then self is really showing up for them every step of the way, which will help them trust. So I love this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, originally ERP was based on the habituation model, which, you know, the nervous system habituates, right? We 
walk in the room, it smells like whatever's cooking and eventually we don't notice it. It just happens. Um, but that's not all there is. Right. <laughs> and um, certainly it's not the only, it's not, it's not healing in the way we're talking about healing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that relationship building is the key. And sometimes if it works, it might work in a very specific context. So maybe they'll, they might have an easier time eventually approaching cars, but it doesn't generalize the way that what you're talking about could generalize because if these protectors have relationships with self, then across situations, they're going to be able to lean into to that relationship. Right, right. I think that um, when you're talking to somebody who does ERP, they will say they do exposures in multiple, like, because you're right that fear learning tends to generalize, but safety learning doesn't as much, right, in, in the, their, that model. But access to self and self-leadership can carry a person through all kinds of situations. The ability to, to be in connection and to, to be with parts rather than pushing them away. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Melissa, in your experience, what are the best possible results we might achieve when working with OCD? Is OCD a condition that can be completely resolved with IFS or any other therapeutic approach? Ooh, that's a complex one. And, um, you know, the answer is sometimes yes, and and for others, maybe not. Um, you know, I and I think that because we, there are so many different paths to OCD. Um, some people have it genetically, some people have a sudden onset because of a virus, some people it develops through trauma, neurodivergence sets a person up for obsessive compulsive behavioral cycles as well. So I think the answer to your question is it depends. Uh, there are many people I, who OCD is not an issue anymore in their life. And um, so, you know, there's, there are people who say OCD isn't cured, it's managed. And others who say you can actually resolve it. Um, I, I believe that you can really resolve this situation. Um, and just like anything else, you know, our, our brain body system um, and our external systems, you know, we have we, feelings ebb and flow, right? So there's always going to be a glitch or another glitch. It's a matter of being able to manage it um, effectively and not be hijacked by it. So I do, I do think that people can really um, resolve OCD and that I, I think that <laughs> I think that IFS actually helps it become a deeper, more permanent and more holistic resolution. Um, but that uh, rather than just symptom reduction, right? That's what we, it's not, we're not doing just symptom reduction. And this is what I'm really gratified to see and hear um, in, in more of the OCD circles these days is that we're working with a whole person who is not just an OCD system. OCD is a system within the larger system, right? So it, we can help this system settle, you know, we're also helping all these other parts navigate life more effectively. Um, 
that's really the goal. That's the best possible goal, just like with everybody else, that we have more access to self-leadership in life and balance and harmony, and we're not excluding anything. We're relating to it differently. And what is coming for you? We understand you are writing chapters and books on IFS and OCD, and that you also do consultation. Yeah, I I, <laughs> um, I am writing a lot. I have a um, book coming out hopefully in the fall with um, Rutledge on, you know, it's, it's challenging writing on this topic. So I, I'm writing to um, an OCD audience, trying to really demonstrate the value of IFS as, you know, a way to, to augment or uh, improve standard treatment. I have another one that will be coming out um, later. Um, I'm working with Martha Sweezy to hopefully really address this more specifically to the IFS community. So, you know, it's a different set of information. What is OCD? What are the subtypes of OCD? How do you recognize it? How do you differentiate it from, you know, it's a different sort of set of circumstances. So I'm, I'm working on that. I'm also working on a workbook for individuals. So I'm doing a lot of that and I'm, uh, I do have consulting groups and uh, do consultations, um, you know, workshops and trainings and uh, just really, um, and, you know, seeing a lot of people uh, who have, uh, you know, the people who tend to find me are the ones that um, ERP hasn't worked for. And so I do also a lot of client work still. So I, I really love that and really appreciative of my clients for their willingness to, you know, help me figure this out. Melissa, thank you so much for such an amazing conversation and for all your work in this difficult topic all the wisdom you shared today and again many congratulations for such an amazing work you are doing and for bringing to our community an IFS informed approach to OCD. It was a joy to be here with you and Lexi. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you both. This has been really, really fun to articulate with you and your, your wonderful questions, both of you. Thank you.